Holistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, here we are uh, back together again in less than a week. As I uh, mentioned in the last podcast, I'm taking a little road trip and might not get another podcast out until the end of next week. So this way we won't go over seven days between our little get-togethers here in the salon. And before I forget it, I want to thank Charlie H. and our regular donor, Dr. Laura, for their donations to help offset the expenses that come up with these podcasts. I really appreciate your help, Charlie and Laura, uh, as well as uh, what many of our fellow saloners are doing in the way of posting their thoughts and comments to our blog and over on the forums at thegrowreport.com. There's a lot of interaction going on in these forums, and uh, I think you'll find them quite interesting if you get a chance to surf over there someday. Well, uh, as you can see from the title of today's podcast, I'm going to be playing one of the talks that was given at the recent psychedelic conference in Basel, Switzerland last week. And thanks to Otto Vidal and his brave little MP3 recorder, many of the talks given in English were uh, captured and placed online. And if you've been surfing the Psychedelic Salon forum over at thegrowreport.com, you've uh, probably already downloaded and listened to some of them. And over the next few months, our, uh, our friend Max Freakout over on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopetheme.co.uk is going to be podcasting most of these talks, uh, which he also recorded. So eventually you'll be able to hear them all in podcast format uh, over at uh, Psychonautica. But as I said, if you uh, go over to our forum, you can find the link to download many of them directly right now. Now getting on with today's talk, uh, we've got a real treat. In fact, uh, this is the one talk from the conference that I've heard the most comments about. And it's by Carolyn Garcia, who is also known as Mountain Girl. And to introduce her properly would actually require several podcasts. And uh, so I'm going to take the quick and easy way out and read a few lines about her that I found on Wikipedia. And while I realize that we can't trust everything we read on Wikipedia, I think that uh, these basic facts are uh, at least in the ballpark of being correct. And uh, here's part of what they have to say. Carolyn Adams Garcia was a merry prankster and the wife of Jerry Garcia. After growing up near Poughkeepsie, New York, Adams met Neil Cassidy in 1964, who introduced her to Kesey and his friends, one of whom gave her the name Mountain Girl. Cassidy took her to La Honda, Ken Kesey's base of operations, where she quickly joined the inner circle of pranksters and was romantically involved with Kesey, having a daughter by him named Sunshine. Before actually marrying in 1981, Jerry Garcia and Adams had two daughters. Garcia and Mountain Girl ultimately divorced in 1994. However, they remained personal friends right up until Garcia's death a few months later. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that uh, this recording isn't all that clear. I've used all of the tools that I have to clean up the sound as best I could, but it's still a recording of a talk given over a loudspeaker system in a large room. However, uh, for a lot of reasons, I want to play it anyway. And should I ever come across a uh, clear recording of Mountain Girl's talk, I'll replace this one uh, that we fortunately have thanks to the good work of Otto Vital and his uh, brave little MP3 recorder. And in a way, uh, I really like the way this talk sounds because it reminds me of uh, some of the old bootleg recordings I've heard of dead concerts, which uh, seems very appropriate when you think about it. 
So now let's join Carolyn Mountain Girl Garcia as she reminisces about the pranksters, the Grateful Dead, and the 60s.
powerful auditory hallucination. For many months afterward, sudden loud voices came straight into my ear, speaking in a language I didn't understand. I had no translator or guide, and no one to talk to about my experience. And there were other changes. The spectrometer became alien and unfriendly. The 14 steps necessary to prepare the machine and insert the sample were now unworkable. My unreliable work's performance was now under scrutiny. I had been the star of the lab, but now too confused to perform necessary complex tasks and so lost my job. After a year working nights, I began to look for friends and to expand my social life. Stanford University fostered a rich, youthful mix, a frothy stew of artists, writers, new bohemians, and musicians. It was 1964, a golden, easy time, and I fell into a good place. Another group of people, now my lifelong friends, Intrepid Traveler and Mary Van de Pranksters had existed for a summer's high adventure, penetrating America on an old bus. I had heard of them as a legendary party gang in the hills near Palo Alto, California. In September, I met Neil Hampstead at the local coffee shop and went exploring with him for a whole night, driving around in the mountains, exchanging stories, searching for his friends who had some bennies, and eventually came to Ken Kesey's house in the Redwood Forest, west of Palo Alto. At the first light of morning, we drove down the dark mountain valley road, bumped over a little bridge, and rolled to a silent stop in front of a huge, wildly painted bus. It was glowing in the flaming red light of dawn, the most amazing, wonderful thing I had ever seen. A sign at the top proclaims the name further. Here was an artist, a mystery, worked on by many, many hands, with layer upon layer of paintings. Even the wheels were multicolored. A normal school bus is plain yellow with the purpose of safety for children. This bus was not yellow, and its purpose was mysterious. With cracked windows and broken, flapping door, but certainly not safe. The paintings were both meticulously detailed and random in an unplanned, playful style. I sensed the ripples of a great mystery. And as I touched the rough paint, I felt the stinging challenge to ordinary ways of seeing and being. Over the door, a little painted sign read, Nothing lasts. Ken Kesey and his friends swept me into their circle. I immediately realized that these were the friends I had been looking for. <laughs> Active, bright, adventuresome characters, full of fun, and strongly linked on many new levels. They embodied a concept of a personal artistic freedom and license, a license they freely gave themselves, and they also had LSD. Ken Kesey impressed everyone with his intelligence, his brilliant writing, and his cascades of ideas. <coughs> with two prize-winning novels, 
He was already a celebrity. As a dramatic public speaker, he filled with energy and personality, and possibly multitudes of possible personalities. He had a lot of extra parts to his mind, and they were not necessarily always working together as one. His book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, was his first writing success, but it was deeply enriched by Keith's exposure to mescaline, psilocybin, and LSD. As a test subject, as a student test subject in a government-sponsored study, and in his work as an assistant at the local mental hospital, and he worked nights. He had always had an abiding, intense interest in the plight of schizophrenics and two institutionalized people labeled as insane. With his, with his three young children, and his wife Faye, in a series of dachshunds and cats and birds, their simple home was a warm, welcoming, and boisterous place. The enormous, round, rustic table filled one end of the living room and easily seated 15 people or more, and all were welcomed and fed. We were part audience, part family, as Katie led discussions late into the night. As the children went to bed, the all-night conversation moved out into the Katie's writing studio, a little cabin by the creek, out past the colorful bus parked outside under the giant redwood trees. Keithy and his friends were practicing transformation. First, transforming their, in, their original selves into super personalities for the super drugs they were taking. <laughs> <laughs> Developing new personas for mutually supporting transformed states of mind. <coughs> new characters manifested and evolved and mutated and played together in the circle of trees, illuminated also by the colorful bus and the continuous repainting. Laughter was our sign of success. If it was funny, it was good. Keezy would announce a party. His real love. <laughs> His real love beyond drama and telling was transformation. He loved to create a space and transform it into something that cracked the boundaries of normal time or lived outside of time. And he'd invite people into it to amaze and delight them. Saturday night parties brought the most cross-fertilization from Berkeley to Stanford to San Francisco and all manner of poets, musicians and artists, friends and travelers would drive down. Speakers in the high in the trees softly played Miles Davis, John Coltrane. Keezy and the pranksters had recorded a huge tape by her. And the forest rang with readings by William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, mixed with music from Beethoven, Ray Charles, Paul Horn, and Bob Dylan. New audio recordings were made at each event with fun feedback and tape-looped, tape-looped lag. Movie cameras captured the peak, the peak moments from the replay at the next event as time, as part of the time-bending exercise. 
Gigi was obsessed with recording all the right. And I was pressed into editing and creating short pieces of film. 75 hours of film in cans was stacked inside the studio, shot during the prankster's earlier bus trip to New York um, earlier that summer. And I missed that bus trip, but I met them shortly after they returned. So boxes of tapes and shells were spilling out all these recordings, and it needed attention, labeling and cataloging. And further itself was wired for sound with stereo headphones, which you can see in this picture hanging behind Neil Cassidy's head. Um, my stereo headphones and microphones for communications between crew, driver, and anyone riding on top of the bus. <laughs> of course, this stuff only works some of the time. An Ampex stereo tape deck wired to a mixing panel created feedback loops, echoes, and we broadcast from speakers on the roof deck as we rolled along, tootling on flutes, whistles, and horns, singing and commenting on everything as we passed. Driver Neil Cassidy kept up a deep philosophical conversation with all of us at the lunch when everything was working. With a great deal of masking tape, electrician's tape, recording tape, wire, solder, film, with a noisy generator and a wavering electric current, we somehow made it all work. Technical complexity, bus breakdowns, and crew instability always threatened to upset the plan of the hour. Managing, managing to get all this working while tripping on the excellent stand-up LSD was the further challenge. <laughs> Keezy steered our vessel with the guidance of the Ching. He often threw his coins daily, frequently giving each line, the throw for each line to a different person. They recorded both questions and readings in a big book. The judgment of the I Ching was often correct, in depth, and set new directions. It gave very clear advice. We depended on it for clarifications and community building insights. There was also an ever changing crew as people came for a few journeys and left again. In the summer of 1965, the gatherings intensified, drawing in visitors to weekend-long exploration, bringing in new players and challenges from police. Owsley Stanley came with his retinue and shared his products and his ideas for future events. We attracted writers, Ginsburg, Hunter Thompson, Robert Stone, and biker poets, Biker poet Freewheeling Franklin brought the entire Oakland Hells Angels motorcycle club for a three-day campout <laughs> as the police watched from the road. Every expedition to San Francisco on the further bus attracted new people back to home base, eager to continue their exploration with psychedelics and the pranksters. Yet the events continued growing larger and longer until King Keaton finally realized that chaos, while not exactly the enemy, 
was overwhelming his home in the forest. Evolution dictated change. And we moved the events over the hill and into the city. In about 19, oh, in 1965, in November, uh, the first acid test uh, blossomed very briefly at a private house in San Jose, California. Whispered word to a few people. The information spread, and the right audience appeared. They appeared with an air of secret vision. And we couldn't advertise ahead of time, or too many might come. We put up elaborate hand-drawn posters at bookstores. <laughs> we put up you know, wonderful hand-drawn posters at bookstores and coffee houses that we knew were, were good places where people we knew would congregate. And they had no location written on them. And we would fill in that information at the very last minute, and possibly just by word of mouth. He manifested about a dozen of these events altogether, as 1965 rolled over into 1966. The antitest succeeded as a format for all-night events. Music, lights, costumes, dancers, toys, spontaneous and raw, Lasting until dawn spread its teeth. The Big Beat Lounge in Palo Alto, the Mirror Beach Community Center, Fillmore Auditorium, and Portland, Oregon, all boomed with the Prankster Orchestra sound collage, which was really ahead of its time. <laughs> You'd like it better now. <laughs> and the rhythm and groove sound of the pro <clears throat> we also had escalating legal problems. Keezy, of course, was the target of law enforcement. They were determined to imprison him. And as, as a drug ringleader, and his uh, resistance demanded a lot of time and money and personal energy. And in January of 1966, we were fully mobilized. And in collaboration with a wonderful group of artists in San Francisco, we spent three days working at the Trips Festival. The first event of its kind, it brought together rock and roll musicians, poets, early liquid light shows, experimental movies, projections, mystics, and an array of gadgetry and artists and trippers, even offering places to plug in for people bringing their own gadgets to the event. We were all inside the giant pinball machine together. Audience participation was very high, and our inner cyclotrons were fully charged with the excitement of everything happening at once. Howling chaos and jubilant participation ruled for three nights to change the perception of what life could be for all who were there. And there's an excellent film that's been made about the Trips Festival recently by my friend Eric Christensen. Um, it's a short documentary, about an hour long, and then he included a panel discussion also that had the, some of the organizers of the Trips Festival, and um, you should be able to find a source for that online. It's just simply called the Trips Festival. Um, 
It's a very good documentary. It's quite new. So our Cranger crew worked hard at the church festival despite an unfortunate encounter with the San Francisco police the night before. Um, we were arrested on a, on a rooftop and uh, spent a couple days in jail just before the church festival. And afterward, after the church festival, disruption overtook us. Kesey was obviously going to go to jail this time. And he decided to leave the country to avoid prosecution. <laughs> Leaving the bus and the pranksters and his family behind to sort out all the details, he faked his own suicide and then fled to Mexico with Ron Boise, an infamous sculptor who knew the backcountry roads. Um, further, and our prankster crew kept going on. We went forward. We didn't know what else to do. Um, without Kesey, it felt rudderless and sort of anxious, and we just decided to to follow the route we had laid, laid out for ourselves and continue to perform after test. Despite the immense wave of, of bad publicity and uh, surrounding Kesey's arrest and his disappearance um, out in the world, we were pretty notorious. And we began to host acid tests in the Los Angeles area. It seemed, it seemed too dangerous <laughs> to return to the San Francisco area for quite a while. And, and winter in warm Southern California was very appealing. Even without Katie's inspirational guidance, the acid tests were so much fun, we kept doing them wherever we could find a safe place. And this card is what we carry. And this is our card. And this is how the back of the card looks. <laughs> we all, I still have mine. <laughs> Sunset Strip, Pico Boulevard, Hollywood, Hollywood and Vine, La Jolla, San Juan Capistrano, Asilomar, and Laurel Canyon became our new locale. We had no money. With very little money. They became adept to dumpster divers just to stay alive. We charged one or two dollars for admission to our events, which barely covered the expense. And here's a poster from one of those events. You can see that it's pretty old. Now. Um, we shared space with a, with a group of new friends. Hugh Romney, who became Wayne Drayton at Woodstock years later, and the beautiful, his beautiful wife, Miss Bonnie Jean, Tiny Tim, Del Close, and other performers from the Second City and the Phantom Circus joined us. Our brave band of friendly musicians who had followed us down from Palo Alto to be at our events would set up and play. They enjoyed the chaos and the free form of other events. And they didn't care how crazy things got. They were reliable and game to come play with us. They dragged their equipment into whatever tiny space we had for them, plugged in, and worked with us with the blown fuses. The broken microphones, the tape running out on the floor, wires writhing everywhere, 
the goofy, altered people running through it all. They persisted, and they played. Sometimes they were a bit too far gone to play, and would just begin a few notes and stop. In amazement at the chaos, however, they were ready for this, and easily entertained themselves. Our friendship grew strong and solid. They were Pigpen, Phil Lesh, Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, and Bill Kreitzman of the Grateful Dead. <coughs> we, we had meetings to try to organize these events ahead of time, but I was so busy running the sound system and the equipment and loading tape and soldering microphones. There's the, there's the original Warlocks, which became the Grateful Dead, set up at an acid test. <coughs> In, in, uh, in Los Angeles. And um, <coughs> they would play them when they could. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was so busy, I was so busy running everything, and I just had to limit myself to a very small dose, to a very small working LSD dose, around 75 to 100 micrograms. And tune, tuning into the cosmic was enough to keep me aware of everything on on all levels around me, but responsibly functional as well all night long. I also needed to have enough enough energy to be able to help load up the bus in the morning. So I never really got all that high at a massive test. I never melted down. I was working. I had a serious mission. <coughs> I wish I could have gone with the flow, but it just wasn't available to me. You know, focus was far too important to, to carry the events forward. And without focus, it pretty much would have fallen apart. We recorded and filmed as much as we could afford to. Some of this material still exists and is available at kiwi.com, but it is pretty fragmented. You know, I look back on it now, and um, I have to ask myself, what were we doing? <laughs> We were short-sighted. We had no plan about where we were going or what we would do or how we were going to put gas on the bus. We uh, charged about a dollar, sometimes two dollars to get in. And if you had a good costume, you probably could get in for free. <laughs> Folks did dress up. Costuming was easy in LA. And that was the great place for costumes. And I remember we were drawing plenty of new people in. And we were deliberately eliminating, I'm going to go back, we were deliberately eliminating the audience performer boundary and inspiring free expression and open participation. We encouraged it. It was the only thing that kept it going. The audience became the show. We had pots of fluorescent paint in daybreak colors under powerful black lights for people to paint themselves and transform their body. A brilliant strobe light that I liberated from Stanford Research Institute <laughs> pulsed at the, at the far end of our spaceship. It had a huge dial with flash intervals of up to a thousand per second. And we could reset the beat to any level. We rigged lights and screens for liquid projections. And we mixed this with film and slides and primitive color wheels and sheets of mylar that you would hold up and wave around. 
protected under the whole room. We didn't use screens. We just protected onto the whole room whatever we had. And onto people's faces and bodies and the floor, the bus, anywhere, anything that we could project onto. Stuart Brandt, who was the main organizer of the Trips Festival, joined our crew for, for the Los Angeles test. And he had a stack of slide projectors filled with images of Native Americans mixed up with film loops of old bus trips um, and, and more of these wobbly mylar reflections. Our patched together sound system linked it all together with rotating feedback loops, which I wish I had one to, we could play with it here. You'd like it. <laughs> and pre-recorded music samples mixed in with whatever sounds the open microphones took in. We had open microphones out on the floor so people could extemporize or, or wail or scream as the, as the energy moved them. The musicians jumped in at intervals, or whenever the cure broke, as it always did. They would perform sporadically and heroically as the spirit moved them amid the spinning lights and the pulsating dancers in a completely altered reality. A basket of hand instruments, bells and whistles, was there for us all. We spoke cryptic and poetic over the sound system. We tried to keep the energy in, inside the building, in balance, or even in a rhythm, so that there were rests and peaceful, quiet parts. We organized one of our final active tests in the city of Watts, which is a ghost town suburb of Los Angeles, where terrible economic riots and race riots had burned buildings and destroyed neighborhoods only four months before. There were empty streets and abandoned stores and homes, and it seemed like a fine place for an outsider's event. Prankster Malfunction rented an empty freight repair shop right on Watts' main street. And we hung a few posters in bookstores and anywhere busy. By now, we were tracking a, a repeat audience. We were seeing the same people week after week. We knew we were in a kind of a danger zone. And we took caution to stage the event far away from normal white affluent entertainment areas of the city. The room was large, reasonably clean, and had adequate power. And as we loaded our equipment into the building, it seemed almost too large. It was, about this, it was a little bigger than this room. We enclosed our central space with wires and sound gear, but there was no comfort. Just hard concrete floors and walls. And as the crowd came in and filled up the void, the room warmed up and seemed safe. About an hour later, it became obvious that there was too much medicine. <laughs> After a quick recalculation, the only answer we found was to give out smaller cups. <laughs> and put a lot more Kool-Aid was added in to dilute the mix. Many people ended up on the floor in oblivion and some were in distress. Yet the music was playing. The night was peaceful. And the ending was very loving. And as people came back to themselves, they smiled as they left and walked out into the sunrise. Two police officers looked in on us as we poured the leftover Kool-Aid 
drink down the storm drain outside. They thought we were crazy drunks. They were well rid of us. <laughs> they did arrest a few pranksters who were very high flyers that night, which kept the police busy as everyone else packed up and left. These sacrifices were sitting back among us because the police didn't want them after all. <laughs> and we learned something about grace from these events. A kind of peaceful glow emerged as people re-entered their normal time and drifted back to their lives. Sharing so close to with total strangers, sharing playful, <coughs> intimate, and deep moments and even if we never spoke, we all knew. We knew that it was right, necessary, and productive. Also revolutionary and radical in the importance of the experiences of that time, when our society was so at odds with itself. We also felt the intensifying hot breath of police interest. Well, the magical substance itself was so rare and precious, the jewel that opened the doors. The unifying experience of the acetest was needed to bring along as many people as we could during a very short window of time. And so, in early 1966, LSD was made, at some point, was made illegal to disaster use. And what was left of the Mary Frankster crew, minus TV, decided in a panic to make a run for the relative safety of Mexico. And we um, all got on the bus in, the, in Los Angeles in the middle of the night, fearing imminent arrest. Seriously, it was scary. We, we were being followed. And we, you know, we could just feel it. A pressure, feel it on the back of your neck. <laughs> and, we, and we drove all night long through the desert on the back roads, going to the smallest town we could find, a tiny, tiny town to cross the border. The many pranksters who were left behind were angry and self-abandoned. The truth was, there was little room left on the bus, and we had 12 people that went with us, with almost no money and all the gear. I felt very crowded and hot. Everything we had was used up in the acid tests. We were a hungry, raggedy, colorful lot as we unloaded everything off the bus for the two Mexican border guards who finally were satisfied that our beat-up gear contained nothing of interest and let us pass. Then we drove on south for days and days. Further was heavily loaded and very slow. The gas was of terrible quality, and with failing brakes and vapor lock and bad clutch, and first the throttle linkage broke a long mountain hill, and we had to push the bus up the hill. <laughs> and then the fireball caught on fire when the battery cable shorted out enough that kept us somewhere for a long time. Delay and delay. Everywhere we went, the adults would cross themselves and look away quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and their little children would cheer and jump up and down and wave. <laughs> I was eight months pregnant and very uncomfortable. 
19 years old, and unable to focus on what was happening to me. We were very, very tired. I cried for days as we pushed out in the heat. <laughs> America receded. With all its politics, we don't have no courtrooms, unpleasant attitudes, and unconscious, poorly managed wealth, wars, attitudes, and advertising. Mexico began to feel relaxed, humble, and genuine. Our one thought was to find Kiwi and go somewhere safe and inexpensive and remote and pleasant. We were so stressed and strained about what had happened that we began to fight among ourselves. We didn't have individual money. We had a can with money in it. If somebody got money, the money went into the can and we took out individually what we needed. Often money would be there one night and be gone the next morning. <clears throat> Finally, near Mazatlan, we caught up with Kizi, who had gone before us, fleeing from prosecution after the church festival. We caught up with him and blew his cover completely. <laughs> he was disguised as a mild-mannered ornithologist doing bird research in the jungle. <laughs> but he was crazy and paranoid and imagined a federal agent behind every cactus and was so very upset with us and refused to get aboard the bus. So further after much discussion, further drove on south to Manzanillo, which at that time was a sleepy little resort town on a beautiful Pacific beach. The depleted pranksters holed up in an old compound that would rest on the beach. We found some hammocks and we survived. And the Kiwi family all joined us later. Six months later, and it was time to return to the U.S. Believing that things had died down, <laughs> even with all the acid tests behind us, having shattered the possibility of these normal responsible, responsible citizens in the U.S., but we still had to go back. Further, we drove further through Texas and we crossed the border without incident. And Kiwi rejoined us a few miles up the road, disguised as a country western musician with a drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> and back we went to California on the bus, and some of us were really sick by now. So, and we, we headed to San Francisco, to San Francisco State College, where there was a Grateful Dead show. And um, Kiwi. Unfortunately, was inspired to do an interview broadcast on the college radio station and made rude remarks about the FBI director, saying that his return to the U.S. was to rub salt in J. Edgar Hoover's wounds. <laughs> Alert and angry, the FBI agents arrested him a few days later. The pranksters were exhausted with no money. We really had no center or mission, our mission was completed, and we had no place to be together. Uh, Keithy's family drove further to Oregon to start a new home in a dairy farm near their families, and that's, that's the Keithy home outside Eugene, Oregon. 
And getting off the bus was the next problem. Once the bus had gone to Oregon, I, I was off the bus too, so luckily my brother was living in San Francisco and I stayed with him for a few weeks, adjusting to a solo existence, motherhood, and a stationary life, and discovered where the Grateful Dead lived, over on Ashbury Street, and had an emotional reunion with those dear friends. I soon moved in with Jerry Garcia as our affection blossomed, and I plunged into living in a wonderful old Victorian house with a dying man. Some sleeping on chairs because there were no beds. <laughs> so at age 20, with a baby in my arms and Hate Street just two blocks away, I began cooking for the Great Dead crew. Cooking what I was calling the brown rice and burned pork chops diet. <laughs> we uh, ate communally and we pulled the money. The musicians each got about $50 a week in allowance from Danny Rifkin, our manager. I was beginning again in a relationship that would last nearly 30 years. Jerry was charming and talented, the center of a strong committed enterprise. The Hayden Ashbury's budding alternative community of artists. So the hate ashbury was just blooming right at that moment in late 66. The community of artists and shopkeepers and artists and musicians, it was at that just beginning to crest moment. Everybody knew each other. And when summer came, so did everyone else. The media had spread an image of San Francisco that spring that one could go to the hate ashbury and a magic would unfold in your life. Or maybe John Lennon would show up. The community in the Hay Ashbury was completely overwhelmed in very short order by thousands of wanderers from all over America who similarly had nothing but expectations and were sleeping on the sidewalks, sleeping in the park, had no money and no food. So very young people came to San Francisco and had to fend for themselves. It was a shock to see all those waves of homeless kids with their little puppies and sad faces with no safe place to be. And as they began to experiment with various psychedelics and other drugs, the streets became ever more unsafe. 1967 was both charming and pathetic on Hay Street, and new heroes emerged. The caring people in the neighborhood were now organizing to care for and feed them, to find them places to stay, to get in legal representation for the many arrests. I felt very fortunate to live in a house with a caring man who loved me, a safe place to be as the chaos rose around us like an angry ocean. The mayor declared war on the unruly streets. As media crews prowled the parks looking for stories, the police arrested hundreds and the smell of tear gas blew up into the hills. The alternative community responded with free food programs in the park, a free clinic, free stores, free boxes. 
We called for meetings at our house to plan benefits and free concerts, trying to create a better vibe, to manifest a kinder world. Organizers came in from the free speech movement, for civil rights groups and the anti-work groups, and jubilation resurfaced as an ideal, oh, jubilation resurfaced as an ideal. In other words, we put that out there. Let's celebrate. And we celebrated with parades and free concerts without permits to the dismay of the civic, the civic um, elders. Without police, music drew thousands out to the parks and out to the green grass. <coughs> the Grateful Dead was part of a community of local music hyped as the San Francisco Sound. Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane, the Quicksilver Messenger Service, and, the, and we all had roots in the earlier Bay Area folk music scene, and they all knew each other. And the musicians would freely exchange songs and, and stage shows and play with each other. It was, it was really a lot of fun. It was so easy to cooperate as tribal units, we discovered, and to put together last-minute plans for events. Energy and enthusiasm for what we could throw together in the face of serious police action buoyed the whole community. Communes, group living, free newspapers, and a sense of vital connection and social evolution welded the chaos into common purpose. Free expression, free experimentation, free will. Sparks flew in all directions. As we already know, nothing lasts. The Grateful Dead focused on their performances, on developing the music, and their careers as Haight-Ashbury phenomenon faded away like a rainbow after a hurricane. The music began to develop some entrancing qualities as they rehearsed day after day, working to create new songs and new recordings. They had a deep need to succeed. We all believed in the vitality of the band's music and we felt the creative juice flow. Our fearless band of acid testers began improvising, creating new material, and co-creating in the moment. Taking psychedelics together for concerts, their music flowed into new and unpredictable places. Using the songs as platforms, patterns, and substructure, they realized they could just let go and play what was in the now and then come back to the organized song. Elements of jazz, folk music, rock and roll, and sometimes jagged, unplanned, exciting things, fused and fragmented, flew apart, reformed into mysterious journeys. Technical problems, feedback, hums, random events, and cosmic interference were all part of the show and enhance the playfulness and change with each little musical landscape. Jerry said that each note had a little spirit, a little life in it. And because of their skill and all that endless rehearsal, they were able to make it sound good. The audience loved it. The audience was that other element, responding, filling the air with energy, calling out, leaping into ecstatic dance, reacting to each change in the music in close communion and exchange of energy. 
energy rolled around the concert, spinning the audience into higher and higher states. Alexander Stanley took on a role as the band's patron early in 1966. He supported them through the end of the acid test in their early recording sessions. <coughs> Determined and single-minded, I'm stepping out here. I want you to do Determined and single-minded, he pushed them to expand and bought all new stage equipment, guitars, instruments, and amplifiers. He traveled with the band, fanned the flames of their adventure, and by his very presence, confounded any attempt to participate in the conventional corporate music business. His will was a force to be reckoned with. He was opinionated, independent, stubborn, and righteous. He saw the future clearly. His dream was to be a sixth musician and be a limb of the creative force monster that was manifesting on stage. His vision of sound as architecture drove him to expend his capital building the new technology for on-stage monitors for, so the musicians could hear each other on stage, mixing, and, and he built a whole new main, main PA, which I showed you a minute ago, that thing. Fake <laughs> canceling microphones and endless loops of new stuff clogged up the flow of the concerts when the gear didn't function. And the band suffered gut-wrenching delays and interruptions too frequently. There was much friction. But there was no stopping the creative flow. <laughs> the music edged into the unseen world, and people changed their lives to go to Grateful Dead concerts. People joined up, went on tour, started to add up how many concerts they made it to. <laughs> Unlike other performers, the Grateful Dead didn't repeat themselves. Each concert was very different, an experimental feeling is never the same, and that created interest and excitement in the audience. Focused on developing the musical rapport, we were all astonished and a bit dismayed at the ever-growing clan of enthusiasts. By 1972, all around the core, a large circle of support moved with us everywhere, carrying a new cultural consciousness and a fascination with all things psychedelic. An island was forming in the mainstream of American culture. Our messianic vision was fading and changing into a business entity driven by the need for income to offset the expense of an ever-growing crew and family. Trucks were bought. Owsley and the crew created the wall of sound to fill the bigger halls. As the challenges got bigger, the band had to increase their size. The dead continued to play the college campuses However, as the political storms of wars and assassinations swirled outside, the band always remained sympathetic, but deliberately apolitical. And they focused on their long experiential events, often playing for six hours in a night. Imagery of dancing, winking skeletons, red roses, and outrageous costumes. <coughs> 
enticed these new converts to events resembling a religious revival meeting. The band provided access to a magic bridge, leading to a gestalt of love and affirmation. And many stoned heads felt the first stirrings of religious feeling. Feedback between ecstatic audiences and the musicians gathered energy. The entrancement grew stronger, the events larger, as more energy pulsed through in a long, slow gathering of momentum. Their talent grew for bringing a huge room full of people into the same psycho-spiritual space, bringing everybody in together. I was caught in that too, and supported it from my spot behind the amplifiers, projecting the energy, helping the room to flow. As an extended family, our support for the art grew to the point where it superseded everything else. We were locked in. We worked. It was all about the work. And now I look back and wonder why we were so intensely dialed in, so focused, because it was so compelling that what they co-created on stage with so many others just did not always work. And it would fall apart. And then the depression and anxiety kicked in. It kicked us into working harder the next time. Everything depended on that unifying force, it seemed. I remember one time the band played at the Stanford University in the mid-1980s during the worst of the Reagan years. When nothing else was happening, all festivals had shut down. There was nothing to go to. Every other festival event had been shut down. And here was a Grateful Dead show, outdoors, in the trees, with 15,000 people greeting each other, loving each other, recreating their community and creating this beautiful alternative community that's now cross-pollinating. And I'm really proud of all that. We made a place for everyone. Well, everyone to meet, well, it was not exactly a safe place. It was attractive enough to generate the impulse to get there. And these slides that I've just been showing you are, are the envelopes that people sent in in the lottery to get tickets to the shows during the 1980s. Um, the better the envelope, the better your likelihood of getting the ticket from our in-house ticket office. And so people just made the most wonderful, wonderful collection. I'm so glad I photographed these um, before they all disappeared. Um, anyway, so the Grateful Dead show at, at Stanford was, was a real watershed for me because I suddenly saw it. I saw our island. I saw it in the midst of the police and the, and the you know, the new college kids with their, their fresh minds and fresh faces in astonishment meeting this herd of committed deadheads there under the trees. So that place was attractive enough to generate the impulse to get there, and it gave a place for people to find each other and bond. And I hope that all those babies that were made there now know that this was a real community, as well as the biggest circus in the world for years and years and years. After Jerry's death in 1995, it has all sort of devolved. It began to let us all go and to remember what we were doing before we got engaged in this gigantic enterprise. I look back on that long, long period of effort 
Our children are born in the midst of a multitude of adventures that superseded family vacations, adventures that the children don't remember. And what now? How to deal with the aftermath? The gigantic energy and goodwill thrown out by the concerts cannot be remade. Even the best recordings are not going to recreate that communion. I know that our hearts were opened by the theaters. There is no way to close them anymore. Excuse me. We can't go back to society the way it was. We have changed. We are new people. We are old now. And in love and in gratitude and in kindness, that is the path. Communities of spirit and effort and art. We don't know when we are going to meet again. I look forward to that day very much. Thank you. Conversations with people over time, 
he had a, a real knack of remembering, even a year later, exactly what you had been talking about the last time he saw you and would pick up just right where you were at the last conversation. And he loved to talk about um, everything from race car driving to um, whatever Madame Blavatsky was doing with her seances. <laughs> and he, he, he was fascinated. He studied the theos theosophical society. Uh, he was interested in astrology. And he, and he could just, he could free associate about this stuff endlessly. And when he got, when he got high, he would he would carry on with a microphone for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and um, uh, there's a word for this. I forget what it is. Logoria. <laughs> and uh, he um, he introduced. I think he was our, our Hermes. He was he was the person that transported people to the new place. He certainly did that for me. I, I was curious about how you felt about the uh, increased corporatization of the Grateful Dead, which really had become a money-making machine at the end. I, mean, I was very much a part of it, too, and it felt very different than what you were describing later on when everyone was kind of like a, a dollar sign in the audience, and it felt that the, any of that new expression and sharing Come on, the audience had its own separate thing, and the band had its separate thing, and everyone was separate. You felt the band didn't even like each other. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that I think that the audience by that time was so damn sensitive that you pick up on all of the signals and fully understood. However, if you go out now and listen to some of the music they were doing in eighty nine, nineteen ninety, it was boring. It was some of the best stuff they ever did. But but you're correct that the corporate music business is a, is a pitfall snake. It's an awful place to find yourself, and none of them were happy about it. And they, you know, they really felt like they had lost their independence. And it, it, you know, for free will maniacs like them to have to know where you're going to be on August 17th, and you know, like six months in advance, you're going to be sweltering on the stage in Wisconsin. You know, it's not that's not that much fun anymore. And so. You could see they weren't having fun. But they, I, my hats off to them for carrying it forth, even though it, it became something very different. What would you say, looking back on the experiential difference of the Sandoz acid and the Osmi acid? Oh, I think they were completely different. I'd be happy to talk about them. <laughs> the Sandoz acid is, is always the Cadillac of a drug. <laughs> With the Mercedes with two flat tires. That's <laughs> <laughs> a bumpy ride. Parallels <laughs> <laughs> between your experiences uh, then and the race scene in the 90s? Oh, very much so. In fact, some friends of mine and I went to a race in the mid 90s and, and we were the only people there with gray hair. <laughs>
you know, that thing of not having not having a band to look at, and suddenly you're 360 degrees again. You're not in the audience situation. We sort of, I guess it was when concerts became the thing and events fell away. Um, the promoters only wanted to put on concerts. They wanted everybody to sit in their seats. Um, the small faces forward, the, the dancing was not allowed, and the police were there to make sure that you didn't dance. Um, they worked through all that stuff year after year after year and continued to, continued to put on the shows, but it, it was very, very difficult to give up the freedom. Uh, and, and find yourself in a concert situation. None, nobody really liked it, but the money was really good. Uh, first of all, crazy respect for cooking for nine men. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And uh, I just wonder, in all of your experience, everything that you carried, I heard you say a lot, Pardon my English. Um, um, uh, I want to thank you for your tears and to sh you showed us your feelings. 
and uh, yeah, I think that very strong, strong feelings. And how, how maybe you can tell me how you make it a positive part of your life nowadays in this moment. Well, after Jerry died, it was about five years before I could really listen to the music again because it's made me different. One of the things I wanted to get across in my speech was was the emotional. Um, The emotional baggage that came with being around that music all the time. We were so connected, it was so entrained, entrained to it. In other words, I hear it and my whole nervous system reacts instantly. I know instantly what it is. And, I'm, and I have a whole set of trained responses to it. And it's taken me this long to be able to talk about it openly. Um, I, I, I don't know how to describe it other than to say it, it was a kind of enchantment, um, a modern enchantment, and possibly not safe to, to be like that. It was so, you know, it had all this amplification, but it also had this amazing quality, liquid quality of, of being in the moment, the momentary change. Boy, it, it was very hard to break away from. Um, I was a slave to that.
Um, as somebody who currently lives in Haight-Ashbury, you know, I still find it to be a really enchanted place. Um, but I'm curious, uh, uh, what contemporary cultural movements do you see best continuing on the spirit of the pranksters today? Um, hard to say. Um, there's, I, I can see the little sporadic bits of pranksterdom here and there. Um, I, I really, I'm really not sure. You know, I think the whole internet thing has kind of has got a pranksterish element about it. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty good. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> you know and, and so I don't really know where it's, and I have to assume it's youthful enthusiasm will, will always resurgent, it will always be resurgent. Each group of young people that find each other and creates events and they have, they, they reciprocally enjoy each other's company, they all are going to have a little spirit of, of pranksterism about them and I think that it's, it, it's largely a humor-based philosophy. Where did the Mountain Girl handle come about come from? Well, when I first encountered these guys back in, in whatever it was, 65, 64 or 65, everybody took a name, but but you didn't invent it yourself. Somebody had to give it to you. And I, they asked me where I lived, and I just pointed up, and I said, well, I live up there on top of that mountain because I had a little cabin up on top of the mountain. So, oh, oh, you must be Mountain Girl. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I've never been able to get rid of it. And it's okay, it's okay now. <laughs> I'm not going to create that anymore. <laughs> but one of the characters gave me that name that first day I was there. Do you think Burning Man carries on that spirit a little bit? I love Burning Man, and I, I go I go every year. I think Burning Man is one of the most outstanding events ever. It does have some pranksterish energy, but it also has a, such intense organization about it. Um, but there's a lot of trust uh, in play at Burning Man. People trust. Um, they have to trust each other, and um, so I think most people that go to Burning Man are not new. There were already pretty seasoned heads um, who know how to survive in that environment because that's not an easy environment. Um, at least I would hope so. But I, but I think that's the most hopeful and cheerful. Like for me, I, I got very excited when I went to Burning Man for the first time. Thrilled. And I recommend it highly. How interesting your. Um, comments about the liquid quality of, of time, and, and I'm thinking about this, um, the nature of experience, and the fact that this is, a, you know, we're talking about an experience of a long time ago. And I keep thinking, what happened to all that film? And oh. how do you, how do you manage the kind of documentation process at the time of happening to afterwards? And well, what we used to do is get the film developed and then show it at the next party. You know, we've offered that. You know, there would be a big, there would be three or four parties in between when the film would come back from the lab. The film was really slow and very, it was really expensive to get it processed. So with the LSD and the parties and we kind of got lost out of their cans and the, the leader that said what it was would fall off and, you know, so it's a cataloging, logging problem. A lot of the, that film is lodged, I believe, at the LA Film Archive right now. Um, mostly being transferred to digital format. 
when it's really jumbled, we cut up. Uh, we used to we used to cut it up to little bits and make little special movies. I used to cut triple screen pieces that would show on three screens at once. That was a lot of fun. And um, but you know they had globs of tape all over it, and um, it just you know it's going to take a lot of effort. And who's got the time? By the time I caught up with these guys in 1964, there was already 75 hours of film in camps. And by the time we quit, it got us triple. So it's just too much for anybody to deal with, really. It's pretty huge. And a lot of it is, is uh, not very well photographed. So um, it, it's going to require a team of people with a lot of patience to sort it all out. I don't know if that'll ever happen. <laughs> I don't know if it's even really important. I'm not sure. Back there. It's such a monopoly of different drugs and the quality of the LSD and the things that's really happened over the years. Um, do you think that's changed the vibe of the whole music thing? I don't know. Um, uh, I sort of don't go out much. Um, I live on a little sheep ranch in Oregon. Um, recently, however, in the last couple of years, there's definitely been a better quality product. But, um, but I really, I really don't know the ins and outs of that. Um, it may be, I mean, obviously the, the landscape has uh, grown a lot larger when it comes to new varieties. Uh, but most of them I haven't, I have not experienced myself. Good question. Matthew? Is there anything you'd like to share about Jerry as you do him? Maybe some of his more personal qualities. Well, just that he was a workaholic, and um, you know he he wasn't happy if he didn't have a show within the next 24 hours or someplace to go play. He always felt like if he if he stopped playing for 48 hours, he would lose his skill, he would lose his ability to play. So he was very driven. He was driven to be the very best. That was what he wanted to be. And I don't think that they had the idea that they would do this kind of music. I mean, who 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 would ever know how to develop this kind of music? We can only develop under some extraordinary circumstances, and um, they, you know, somehow we need to get a cosmic force in the line to create this cauldron, uh, um, this experimental cauldron of music. And when I call it the, the music monster, it, it really was a monster because it had so much of a life of its own. And it was, Jerry didn't claim that those very experiential parts of the music were anything that he had authored. <coughs> For as far as he was concerned, it just came in from the newosphere. And we had endless discussions, philosophical discussions about where the music was coming from. And we all really know that this was it was just coming when you set the when you set the stage up right and everybody could hear each other and the microphones were good. This is what happened with these people. And, and the experience became one that drew everybody in. You have some favorite songs? Ooh, yeah, I have a lot of favorite, I have a lot of favorite songs. Um, I really wanted to, and I just didn't get around to it. I had so much trouble with my slideshow, because I'd never done anything like this before. And I was pulling material from everywhere, and I wanted to pull in the lyrics to Addicts of My Mind, because that's probably my favorite song. And, uh, because, and I think it fits very well with this conference. 
and um, I wanted to have that, but it just, it just didn't happen. That, that one to me is, is the one that really kind of sums it up. Ever experience downside of your drug use? Oh, you bet. Next morning, you know, always really tired. I mean, and you know, and living on a bus is just like there really isn't any place to rest. You're, you're sort of resting, standing up a lot of the time, or you know, curled up on on a pillow somewhere like a cat, but. Um, I think the worst downside was, for me was, um, as far as drugs were concerned, was anything that had any speed in it at all. It was just so difficult to deal with, and, um, you know, a couple of days of that, and, and it, you'll ruin your life, because everything just, it, it, it turns into something dark and, and miserable, and that is continuously devolving rather than evolving. And it just, it's, it's a very strange thing that happens um, you can take all the brightest and loveliest things in the world and, and turn them dark and awful in, in a few hours. So I think avoidance is a good piece of the puzzle for people who, who want to live a happy life. Avoid many things. <laughs> well, I think we've run out of time pretty thoroughly, and it's lunch, and maybe we want time. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I know that there are uh, a few of our fellow saloners who were actually living in San Francisco during the times Mountain Girl just described, and so uh, this should really bring back uh, some interesting memories. I was about to say fond memories, but recently I saw the film Aquarius Rising, which is a documentary that was shot during the time Mountain Girl just described. And from the looks of it, uh, well, all I can say is that it wasn't as romantic as it may seem right now. In fact, uh, at times it seemed as if uh, those hippies had to struggle just to survive. And the uh, never-ending series of adventures that Mountain Girl lived through, uh, even before she became the den mother to the Grateful Dead, well, that's a, that's a path that not many people could handle. It was interesting, I thought, uh, that she ended with a warning about speed. You know, let's face it, Mountain Girl has survived uh, more of a drug scene than any of us will ever get close to, and yet here she is, smiling, laughing, and still exuding joy and caution about safety wherever she goes. As we uh, just heard, by 1967, when Tim Leary says the 60s really began, Carolyn Garcia had already lived through uh, the Merry Prankster experience, which is something that many people also associate with the 60s. And by the time she moved in with uh, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, she'd already lived uh, a more legendary life than most of us can even dream of. And then came the years with the dead. Ah, what a, a truly amazing and unique woman she is. I'm sure that a thousand years or so from now, she'll most likely be worshipped as the goddess of the mountains or something like that. I'm still blown away by the compassion in her voice just now as she recalled the sad faces of all the young people who descended on the hate during the summer of 1967. And what touches me uh, so much about her empathy for those young people is that here she was, uh, only 20 years old or so, a single mom, and yet it was still the young people who she 
so wanted to help during that summer of love. Uh, she's definitely a bodhisattva in my book. And as for the World Psychedelic Conference itself, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it in the weeks ahead. Uh, and you'll certainly be able to hear uh, many of the talks, if not all of the English talks, over on Psychonautica from uh, Max Freakout. But uh, here are a couple thoughts about it from Otto Vidal, who uh, recorded this talk for us. He says, As a conclusion about the conference, what I've said two days after the event and to what I stick today is that something was missing. First of all, I've been deeply troubled by lack of drinkable water for free, not to mention really expensive meals. I suppose for Swiss people, those were not expensive at all, but uh, that's just it. Switzerland is the most expensive country I've been to, and food and drinks at the conference should have been a lot cheaper. But that's my opinion. It has nothing to do with uh, the speakers nor the whole format, but still a pain in the ass when one spends 12 hours listening. Translation was extra and came with a price. Half of the conference has been done in German, which I don't understand. This way, I've missed Christian Rasch, who I'd love to hear, and Ralph Metzner, who also did his speeches in German. Last thing is that I had this slight hope that there would be some powerful ideas presented by ingenious pioneers of the psychedelic movement. And, well, none of those I've heard. Nothing to really think about in the end. No far-fetched suggestions, stories, etc. The whole conference, besides things I've mentioned, was great. Don't get me wrong. The atmosphere was awesome, but still not magical. I don't know, or maybe I'm just a die-hard fan of Terence's talks. Well, Otto Vidal, I know what you're saying. And it's too bad that you didn't get to hear Christian Rasch speak. Uh, he's one of my all-time favorite presenters at conferences like this. I'll have to see if I can dig out some more of the old tapes of him in Palenque for us uh, here in the salon someday. But in uh, any event, thanks again for making these recordings, uh, particularly this one of Mountain Girl, as it uh, definitely ties up a few of the loose ends in the little history of the 60s that we've been playing around with here in the salon. And I'd like to go on a bit longer, but if I'm going to get this podcast out before we leave on our little trip, I'm uh, going to have to bring this to a close for now. And as always, I want to close by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, or you can also find the program notes for these podcasts, and that's at psychedelicsalon.org. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. 